0: ¡Mama!
1: Welcome to episode 1462 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast Fangrass Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters, Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Sam Miller of ESPN Low Sam. Hey Ben, we're recording right after we recorded the previous episode because we're kind of compressing our recording this week with the holiday coming up later in the week, so we're going to do emails, which we have been neglecting for the past few weeks, so we will kind of catch up today. One thing I wanted to say before we get to emails, this is actually an email we were sent that I wanted to read. This is from Connor, who has a great find here. He says, In episode 1454, Meg and Ben discuss the potential of a home plate Roomba. Well, incredibly, there is a historical precedent. In a June 1961 Sports Illustrated profile of Charlie Finley, the Kansas City A's owner brags about his curious innovations and additions to Municipal Stadium. At one point, the author describes two mechanical devices added to the home plate area, including what seemed to be a fan system used to blow dirt off home plate. Here is the paragraph where that device plus a quote-unquote rabbit that delivers new balls to the umpire are described. So here's that excerpt. But Finley's two most interesting innovations are a device for supplying the home plate umpire with baseballs when he needs them, and a mechanism that saves him the bother of bending over and dusting off home plate. The first is a rabbit with blinking eyes wearing an A's home uniform that rises from an invisible spot in the grass to the right of the plate umpire. Between the ears of the rabbit, who is called Harvey, is a cage of baseballs. The cover magically flings itself open, and the umpire helps himself. The ascent of the rabbit is accompanied by an ascending whistle, while his disappearance into the ground is accompanied by a descending whistle. Simultaneously, the organist plays Here Comes Peter Cottontail. The other innovation is called Little Blowhard. It is a compressed air device whose spout is in the center of the plate. When needed, air jets out to blow dirt off. A few enemy batters have been startled by Little Blowhard or Harvey the first time they encountered them, one of them leaping nearly a foot in the air. And Connor continues here, The device itself is, of course, interesting, and I'll leave it to you all to discuss its merits, but the name Little Blowhard caught my attention. I can't confirm the origin of the nickname, but Little Blowhard was also the name syndicated newspaper columnist Hal Boyle gave to his new air conditioning unit, Heels Boyle, describing his mechanical pet in August 1955. My wife Frances bought him in the summer of 1949 for some time, little blowhard, and I couldn't get along at all. With the intuition of a cat or dog, he sensed at once my distrust and fear of new mechanical gadgets. When Frances turned his knobs, he would begin to purr and puff out cool breezes. But if I even put my hand to his grating, he would snarl and blow a gasket. As Connor said, Boyle was born and died in Kansas City. I have no evidence for this, but perhaps Finley knew him and borrowed the name for his plate cleaner— a little more on these two items from an April 23rd, 1961 St. Joseph, Missouri news press article. Little Harvey and Little Blowhard created equal interest. Harvey might be akin to an automatic pin setter. He comes poking through a fake grass covered trapdoor behind home plate whenever the umpire runs short on baseballs. Harvey is a rabbit cutout dressed in an A's uniform. As he comes through the turf, his eyes light up, begin flashing, and serve as a signal to the umpire that he need worried no longer. A wire basket, well Stocked with baseballs, rests on Harvey's shoulders, and the ump may take his pick. Once he does, the rabbit descends into his hiding place. A further aid to plate umpires is a Little Blowhard. This is a pipe-like affair that keeps the plate clean. It too comes from below. With one big blast of compressed air, it scours the plate. Little Blowhard probably is a more important item than Harvey. Lohard eliminates the need for bending over the plate with a whisk broom. Umpires don't like to bend, especially if they're plate umpire. When he cleaned the plate in the old-fashioned manner, he usually faced away from the pitcher, this left an inviting target exposed to the moundsman and put the umpire in a position of jeopardy. With little blowhard allowed, at least in the A's park, the danger is eliminated. The gadgets are controlled by an attendant near a box attached to the home dugout. That what? last sentence is, is crucial. because it, it, Sorry, <laughs> it exp- go ahead. It exp- I mean, uh, that earlier article said that this all happened magically and did not explain how it actually happened. So there was just a, an attendant attached to the, the home dugout in a little box that i guess would just press a button to activate harvey and little but the suggestion that this is good because umpires could what get drilled by a pitcher while they're bending over to clean home plate was that why would that happen i don't know
0: and we're (laughs) we're, uh, throwing the ball yeah
1: the, the suggestion is that pitchers are throwing the ball at prone umpires (laughs) yeah it seems like like umpires are vulnerable because they're turning their back to the pitcher when they have to bend over to clean the plate and and like what the pitcher doesn't notice that that's happening and just delivers the pitch i I can't imagine this ever happening but (laughs) i don't know if this was just like uh you know charlie finley just wanting to do something modern and attention getting and clearly it got attention but these sound like among the least necessary innovations that have ever been introduced to a baseball field
0: yeah the sentence that stuck out to me was little harvey and little blowhard generated equal interest because little blowhard is a good idea and little harvey is not a good idea like little harvey so little blowhard replaces a thing that like nobody like the umpire doesn't want to brush the plate there's no reason that the umpire should brush the plate. The dirt is there. It's a it's a flaw in in you know the physics. Like this is the problem with playing outside is that like mm-hmm. dust gets places. And so yeah, sure you have some sort of automated thing that keeps it clean. Good fine. Uh, it's not gonna like sell tickets, but it's a <laughs> it's a fine hack. Little Harvey would replace children who are. <laughs> Presumably really happy to have the job of running out and delivering baseballs to the umpires. And Mm -hmm. so you actually are taking jobs away from workers. It's it's the downside of automation and um, laborers. Yeah, but you're you're (laughs) like you're you're replacing something that's, you know, largely, you know, cute and Mm -hmm. and wholesome with yeah. something that's less cute and is mechanical. And so that one is, that's a bad idea, and it doesn't, it would not be interesting. Like, I don't think anybody wants to see a robot moving across the field, Whereas just a little puff of air seems like a good idea. So mm-hmm. one was a good idea, the other was a bad idea, and they should not have generated equal interest, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah,
1: all right, well. Can
0: I, can I tell you my uh, the, my favorite Charlie Finley thing that I, mm-hmm. I learned of this year? I'm gonna send you a picture of it. Are you aware of the K.C. Pennant Porch? I don't think so. All right. The picture is going to, I believe, elicit laughter from you. So this was in 1964. Finley wanted the same. I'm reading this from (laughs) old, from (laughs) old time baseball photos, OT baseball photo, Twitter account, municipal stadium in Kansas City in 1964. A's owner, Charlie Finley, wanted the same distance from right field to home plate as Yankee Stadium had, which is 296 feet, very shallow. But a new rule in 1958, which uh, Yankee Stadium was presumably grandfathered in, a new rule in 1958 required the span from home plate to right field to be no less than 325 feet. And so he had to have an outfield wall in right field, in the right field corner, that was at least 325 feet from home plate. So he built uh, (laughs) the foul, uh, I'm going to try to describe it. The foul line goes 325 feet to the corner, and then jutting into the field of play almost, but not quite parallel to that line, is a sliver of wall that is 29 feet, I guess, or 30 feet of wall. And so there's this little sliver that is at its maximum depth, like a foot from the foul line, and then narrowing in. Mm -hmm. And So this wall juts into the field of play, and then a regular outfield wall curves around from that point. So it almost looks like a little peninsula jutting out into the ocean, and then it curls around like a normal wall would to meet where the regular wall would be and then there's one bleacher filled with fans sitting in this thing (laughs) it's a very awkward photo for a number of reasons the sliver is the clear like visual (laughs) gag here but also it's just weird to see this baseball stadium where there are no bleachers they couldn't sell enough tickets I guess in 1964 Mm -hmm. to have outfield seating and so there's I guess there's a berm well I don't know maybe people sat on the berm There are a few people
1: out there, it looks like.
0: Yeah, there are like six people on the outfield berm. And maybe Mm -hmm. all these people in the bleachers were there for a photo op. So maybe this is a Mm -hmm. staged photo. Anyway, one bleacher in the middle of what would be the outfield, but because there's like a, anyway, it's a good photo.
1: Yeah. I wonder if you'd get like uh, peanuts and beer and Cracker Jacks out there. Do you think it would be even worth the trip for a vendor? For a vendor? not, Not enough people out there to justify it. Yeah, maybe not. Maybe not. Well, Charlie Finley had a lot I mean, of ideas. You can
0: see there's nobody is <laughs> nobody is sitting in any of the other seats down the for, down the right yeah. field line, and so this probably suggests that this was a photo op. So,
1: yeah.
0: I I guess maybe they did have people sitting on the berm during games. I can't
1: say. Finley wanted to go from four balls and three strikes to three balls and two strikes, which I'm sure is an email question that we've answered at some point. I don't think he ever got to test that out, but of course, he championed some things that did end up happening, like bright-colored uniforms and the designated hitter and playoff night games, ball girls at ballparks in addition to ball boys, and he urged the owners to implement a plan where every player would be a free agent every year, which he thought would save them money in the long run because it would depress prices just by increasing. Demand so much and Marvin Miller later said that he was relieved that the owners didn't push for that they dismissed the idea because Finley had so many weird ideas that they didn't see the value in that one and famously he tried the orange baseballs for a couple exhibition games in 1973 and I don't think that there was any dramatic difference in the game being played but I'm reading a Chris Jaffe article at the Hardball Times about it now and evidently pitchers complained about the balls being slippery and hitters complained that they couldn't See the seams which were still red against the orange ball, so no one was very happy with it. But yeah, I would probably slot the orange baseballs that might be even behind Harvey in the, the hierarchy of good to bad Charlie mm-hmm. Finley ideas. Yeah. All right. Emails. Let's start with one from Dan. I hope you are all doing well as the off-season has begun. I am reading Justin Clue's piece on fangraphs about Chris Davis and his struggles since 2013. I found this quote attached to this email via screenshot by Davis extremely fascinating where he essentially says he won't be working on changing his swing despite his well-documented struggles. And the quote is from a Baltimore Sun article, and it says, Davis doesn't plan to make dramatic mechanical changes in 2020. He said the Orioles asked whether he would be interested in attending a private hitting school this offseason, but he wonders how much he could change at his age. And Dan continues, With the vast number of examples available of players who at various points in their careers have had success with adjusting their swings, what factors do you think play into a player not changing his swing? Do you think previous success at the major league level makes guys like Davis think that there's an outside factor not related to their swing that has led to their struggles, despite someone like Hunter Pence completely changing his swing and approach at the plate heading into his age 36 season?
0: boy already, you're already ready for me to answer this one,
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I could start talking if you like, so uh,
0: that's a dad yeah, no, that's a deep question i mean uh, is, yeah. how we I will be honest that um there are times in my life, many times, maybe most times where in the face of failure, I get a mental block that entirely stops me from processing the situation anyway like i'm not I'm not thinking of myself as a you know uninterested observer who is simply watching uh, my life and deciding what would be best for me i am like facing this wall of dissonance and i cannot break through it and so any explanation any explanation that you give me for why chris davis would not want to make changes be it that he has carefully analyzed it and decided that it is not within him or that uh, it could actually make things worse or simply that uh, he just cannot that that his you know he like his ability to think this through is uh, too psychologically burdensome uh, would mm-hmm. be acceptable to me. But I mean, Chris, uh, uh, do you think that Chris Davis's problem is his swing? well
1: at this point it, it, i mean his his swing is not working so i guess it's it's a problem I, I, there could be other problems like maybe he's just slowed down or maybe he doesn't see as well i don't know but there is maybe a more optimized version of his swing that would be a little better i don't know i don't know if he would be as good as he once was or or good at all if he changed his swing but You'd think if you struggled as much as he did that you might be open to change. But but here's the thing that I'll say about Davis specifically before we get into what other players might think. Davis kind of took a different tone last offseason, which may be why he is taking this tone now. So I'm reading from a Joe Trezza MLP.com article in January of 2019 and it says that whether Davis rebounds or not and to what degree remains to be seen, what's clear is that either way, 2019 will be different for a variety of reasons. Davis will be working with a new hitting coach in Don Long and said he's open to incorporating the data that will likely be available via the Orioles' new analytically inclined front office. And it continues, both changes figure to run parallel with the larger theme of Davis's offseason, which was defined by reevaluation and overhaul. Over the course of the past few months, Davis revamped his workout regimen, consulted old hitting coaches, and spoke to sports psychologists. His goals were twofold, relocate the swing that made him one of the game's premier power threats earlier this decade, and relieve the mental anguish that stemmed from last season, statistically one of the worst in baseball history. It says he huddled with instructors from his prospect days, he tweaked his exercise regimen, etc., etc. So he was doing some different things or at least expressed some willingness to do different things. So I don't know how much of that was eyewash and just saying that he would do different things or whether he really did try and still was really bad, if not quite as bad which would account for, you know, maybe now at this point, he's just like, well, I give up, you know, I tried and it didn't work. So that's that.
0: Yeah. My, my recollection is that Joe was on this podcast and said that, uh, yeah. as I remember him describing it, it was kind of like the new, G, the new front office came in and said like, okay, you know, like you got a year, <laughs> you've got a year to, to fail on your own. yeah uh, You're not, you don't have a leash anymore. Like the leash is done. You can either play ball with us, play ball metaphorically. You can either, mm-hmm. you can either, you know, work with us or like, you know, you're probably out of chances, as Mm -hmm. I recall.
1: Yeah. So maybe he tried and failed and thus has given up on trying, or maybe he just said he was doing things differently, but wasn't really dramatically doing things differently. I don't know. Maybe part of it is that he succeeded. Obviously, like if you succeed to the degree that Davis did at his peak, then I think that makes you more reluctant to change things because you think, well, this worked for me. My swing was my swing a few years ago, unless you think that it was your swing and now you've, you've lost your swing and you have to get back to your old swing as opposed to finding a new, entirely different swing. But if you're Chris Davis and you're thinking, well, I'm just a few years removed from... Being pretty good, you yeah. know. I I hit forty-seven dingers in twenty fifteen, and maybe there's a little bit of denial that comes in, and you think, "Well, I'm still that guy, more or less." So all I have to do is stick with what I was doing, and eventually it will work. So there's some of that where if you've never succeeded, if you never did what Chris Davis did, then. You're going to be more willing to change probably than if you led the major leagues in home runs twice. Then you start thinking, well, I'm, I'm pretty good at this. So I think that's part of it. No, maybe part of it could be the contract. Obviously, like no matter how much money you're making, you're pretty miserable when you're struggling this much. And in fact, when you're making as much money as he's making, you're probably more miserable in some ways when you're struggling because then everyone is uh, expecting you to be good and, and yelling at you all the time for not being good. So, not saying that he doesn't feel pressure or urgency to be better, but, you know, if uh, his financial future is assured and his career is winding down in any case, probably he might just think, well, do I really want to? Relearn everything that I learned, or do I want to just, you know, play out this contract and take my money and move on to the next phase of my life? I don't know. Yeah, I, you have to wonder how close he feels. Like, if, if you feel that
0: when you're going out there, you're not anywhere close to getting it, then one way you could respond to that is just say, all right, well, that's it. I mean, I had my years. And they're probably not coming back. And another way is that you could think, well, this is not turning around unless I do something dramatic. And so you could use that as the impetus to do something dramatic. So it could work either way. And and if you feel like you are kind of close, that what you're doing, like the I remember Theo describing the Pacific Association players when when we were talking about doing the book and I was trying to figure out how good they were. He said, you know, it's not like they're bagging groceries and they can't put the groceries in the bag. Like they're good athletes, they're coordinated. Um, they, you know, they know what they're doing. And so if he feels like he is still basically coordinated, if he's still like, you know, a good athlete, then that could also work either way. You could think, oh, wow, there's still something in, you know, in here and I don't want to waste it. And so I'm going to use that as the impetus to make changes or you could say it's so close all i need to find is that that mindset i just needs to click and once it clicks then it'll be there And maybe that's delusional so i don't know how close chris davis feels i'm just looking at chris davis as a major league hitter and obviously the results are absolutely dreadful but so like his chase rate last year was a career best his contact rate last year was not good but it wasn't dramatically. I mean, he was always struck out a lot. So his contact rate last year was 62%. Uh, in from 2014 to 2016, which I, those are basically his last three years as an Oriole. I guess he was bad in 2014. Let's say 2015, 2016, his last two good years. His contact rate was only like 63%, 63 and a half percent. So dropped from 63 and a half, 64 to 62, which is not like that's pretty close. You're you're pretty close there. Mm-hmm. His launch angle those years was like 17% and it's dropped to 14%. But that's not that big a drop either. I mean, both of those are above average, and neither one is anywhere near the top of the league. And so it's not like he has dramatically changed where he would be on the launch angle leaderboard. His exit velocity has gone from 91.3 in those years to 89.1, which is uh, significant, and that will cost you a lot of value, a lot of offensive production. But it probably doesn't feel that different when you're Mm -hmm. doing it. His hard hit percentage has gone from 45% to 40%, which again, like, a, you know, it's it's a big difference that explains a lot of his lost production, but it probably doesn't feel like he's incapable of hitting the ball hard. And his, um, his ex-woba on contact is 433 this year. In 2016, it was only 479. And so, um, again, not that different. And so, while cumulatively, it makes him the worst, you know, the worst hitter in baseball the process of playing baseball, of standing in the batter's box, probably feels about the same. Like the feeling of walking back to the dugout a lot more often, having uh, failed to get a hit, uh, has probably a um, cumulative burden on him, and he feels different when he goes home, and it it all feels quite sad. But when he's actually in the batter's box looking at a pitch, he can still identify it, he still sees it coming in, he still knows how to put the bat on the ball, and sometimes it goes a long way. So um, it probably still feels to him like... He's not that far
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah and in fact in this Baltimore Sun piece from earlier this month Davis says it's really early To tell but I feel like it's different already Just the way the season ended really the way The season went obviously it wasn't A great year for me but last year and two Years ago felt completely different It was I'm not going to say easier To go through the season but I enjoyed being Around the guys I enjoyed coming to the ballpark I have hope now to where I had so many questions two years ago When the season ended so Sounds like he's feeling pretty positive, which uh, maybe it's just because... His last year was better than just the terrible depths of the previous year. But again, like in this article from last January, he was talking about his willingness to change. He said, to come down this path the last couple of years and make no adjustments, make no strides in a different direction. I don't want to do it anymore. I had a lot of work to do, so there wasn't a whole lot of time for me to sit back and feel sorry for myself. I wanted to explore a lot of options as far as my offense was concerned, my nutrition and training. I felt like the clock was ticking. So, I don't know, he's tried. I I mean, I think that... It varies from person to person, obviously, how set in their ways they are, and that's something that a lot of employers are looking for. If you look at, like, Orioles job listings right now in the baseball operations department, they all say that they want to have people with growth mindset, which, you know, just basically means that you think you can learn things and get better at things and that talent doesn't dictate your performance completely and that you're not necessarily just who you are right now forever, but you can actually improve and learn new skills. So. I think there always, uh, there's a spectrum with players or people in any walk of life when it comes to that stuff. And particularly players who are in their thirties and veterans and. All this data wasn't around when they came up and this whole like launch angle thing was not really in vogue when they broke into the big leagues and they figure, well, I, I didn't need it to get here. So now I don't need it to stay here, which maybe they're wrong about, but you can understand how they think that. And some players just aren't really wired for it. It seems like, for example... Chris Davis's teammate, Mark Trumbo, who led the major leagues with 47 homers the year after Chris Davis led the major league with 47 homers. Mark Trumbo had a, a down year in 2017, and he sort of attributed it to paying too much attention to stats or numbers or mechanics, and he came into this spring sort of saying that he had gone back to basics, and now he wasn't actually going to look at those things, and they had just kind of... Been in his head a little bit He said uh, his key to an Improved season was to cure a mind that Was a little cluttered with a lot of numbers Flying around and angles and things Of that nature that really detract From the goal of squaring up the ball So with certain hitters who Didn't come up in a game that cared About those things maybe they Really did just learn to hit by you know See the ball hit the ball and when you introduce This other stuff then Maybe it's too late for them or it's actually Counterproductive I have never changed. I have often thought I need to make
0: some changes and I have committed to those changes for hours at a time, but I have never actually successfully changed. And I wonder about people who do, who we read about having made great swing changes. I wonder if they have actually made a change or if they are simply changers. And for them, changing is the thing that is the constant for them. Mm -hmm. And so for them, it, they did not say, okay, well, what I've been doing for 32 years of my life is not working. I need to really do something different and commit to it. For them, they just went, ah, it's another, it's a new month. Got a new, got to do a new change. Mm -hmm. And then for everybody else, I wonder if it's just like, just too, too defeating and too heavy to think about, like, re- like actually, like, abruptly changing the trajectory of everything you've been doing for 30 years and then sticking yeah. to it, sticking yeah. to it through all the diff- difficult parts and not getting lazy and backsliding. I, I don't know. I, I wonder if, like, just 90% of people can't do it. And then Mm -hmm. 10% of people just can't stop doing it, and that's just their temperament.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and Tom Tango has shown that players who do change their launch angle dramatically, like the ones who have success right away doing that are much more likely to keep doing that as opposed to just going back to what they were doing before which maybe just makes sense. Like if it's working for them, then, you know, maybe it's what they should be doing, but it could also just be that it's hard when you're struggling and slumping and it, takes a lot of mental fortitude to stick with something through a slump and so even if it is the best thing for you in the long run it might take some growing pains to get there and not everyone is going to be willing or able to go through those things so yeah it's very much a a case by case basis I, I think there are Far fewer players in today's game who are unwilling to at least consider changes or, you know, take into account this new information and wonder if it could work for them or ask questions about it at least as opposed to just dismissing it out of hand. But still, it's uh, you know, when you're Chris Davis and you've had some success and you're wealthy and and comfortable at least financially, and it's well, do I want to completely relearn everything this offseason or do I just kind of want to take it easy and? give it my best shot and do what I've been doing and again, maybe he has tried It sounds like he has tried some things differently But at a certain point You can see why maybe He'd be a little less likely to keep pushing Than someone who's like, you know, entering His seventh season in A Or something, and it's clear that he has To do something different or else
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I mean what's The most, li- the most likely thing that's going to happen For Chris Davis is at some point the Orioles will Release him, and then he'll sign mm-hmm. with a New team, and a lot of the pressure will be Off him, mm-hmm. and he'll work with new coaches as it is, you know, naturally as it is, and maybe that'll be freeing for him.
1: Yeah. Alright, so speaking of players who make changes This is a question from Kevin Patreon supporter A big part of Garrett Cole's story is that The Astros unlocked his full potential Due to their cutting edge player development techniques I'm wondering if this affects his Free agency, are there teams That lack confidence in their player development And coaching and might think the massive investment In Cole won't be worth it for them Or can they bank on the fact that Cole Learned so much from the Astros that he won't Regress and his experience will only Help their organization
0: Yeah I do not believe that any team sees themselves this way. So this the the premise of the email is that the other teams are stupid and they aren't going to be able to keep Garrett Cole good. And it might be true that they are not able to keep Garrett Cole good. It might be true that the Astros are the only team that is smart enough or has the uh, the insight into Garrett Cole enough to keep him going. Uh, but I don't think any of the other 29 teams or really anybody in the front offices of those 29 teams sees themselves that way. I think in order to put yourself out there as one of the 30 best teams in the world at baseball, you really do have to believe that you are one of the 30 best teams in baseball and that you are capable of of competing at that level. Mm-hmm. So I that might be a blind spot. It might cause, if, if this dynamic were true, that Garrett Cole is just... Like going to be just shedding talent with every mile he travels away from from Houston, then it might be a blind spot that teams will uh, will suffer from. But I don't think that any team is thinking we can't sign him because we're not smart enough to keep him good. Now, yeah. to the question of whether. We think that, I mean, this is the old Dave Duncan question. We used to mm-hmm. talk about this with Dave Duncan and he would teach the, the two seamers to the old you know, veterans and they would suddenly be good. And then they would be free agents and, and you'd be like, well, is is he going to be good when he goes somewhere else? And I think there was research at the time. And I think that with Garrett Cole, I wouldn't really worry about that. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it seems like unless, I mean, you know, unless there's some sort of like trash can banging going on <laughs> on the pitching yeah. side. Uh, Garrett Cole's stuff is extremely obvious, and it seems like all you, he now knows how to pitch in this way that is very successful. It doesn't seem like he's dependent on the Astros. Like, it's just, Mm -hmm. it's the best slider-fastball combo in the game. Like, that travels. All you have to do is not tell him, only throw two seamers in, like the Mm -hmm. Pirates did. Uh, And you've pretty much done what the Astros did.
1: Yeah, I agree. I don't think any team would be worried about this. I mean, the changes that Cole made, I don't see why they would be dependent on... Continued Astros work Like he made those changes he bought Into them they clearly worked for Him I would think he could keep doing What he's doing and keep having success And even if a lot of teams Weren't prepared to Tell him or convince him To make the changes that the Astros convinced him To make a couple years ago I think Now a couple years later Plenty of teams understand those Changes and, and realize what he did And why he's good and won't Tell him to go back to some Counterproductive way of pitching So I would not be worried about it In his right. case I mean there could be like Certain cases I could see like If you take a marginal Player and, and you make him Productive because you're Constantly tuning him up Before every game you know you're Getting him on the high speed cameras and the rep and everything and you're just making Sure like maybe he has a tendency For his grip to drift on On his pitches or something and he loses his feel for certain pitches and maybe an organization or some organizations are adept at continually monitoring him and saying, hey, you're you're getting a little bit away from what you are good at. So I could see that kind of thing. But Garrett Cole is, I mean, he's blown people away. I, I can't imagine that he's going to do much worse anywhere else. And and I do think that teams recognize that there are imbalances between player development approaches just because things have changed so rapidly in the past few years and because the markers of that are so obvious like if you invested very heavily in a certain type of technology and and your team has none of it like uh, i was talking to some people who were with the orioles before and after the change in regime and they were saying that like they knew that They were falling behind, that like the Astros and the Yankees and the Dodgers and the Rays were doing things that they just weren't doing at all. Like they weren't buying the cameras, they didn't have the technology, and they Tried to tell themselves like we'll just work really hard and and it'll be okay and we'll catch up we'll keep up somehow but like they knew that they weren't doing those things or at least the the people I talked to did now you know the people who were making the decisions to not do those things maybe they felt like (laughs) whatever we're doing is fine and and they probably did have an inflated sense of their own approach so I'm sure that's part of it like every team is going to probably rate itself more highly than it should. So I think that's true, but again, with Cole, wouldn't worry about it.
0: Yeah, with Cole, that's the key. I mean, there yeah. are lots of pitchers that you you um, that I I could be worried about in certain circumstances. There's a uh, there's a line in your book that I think about all the time, which is um, a quote from Brian Bannister: "Maintaining breaking balls is a full time job now. A breaking yeah. ball will waver between a sixty and a seventy pitch just based on fifteen degrees of spin axis." And I just think about that constantly. And if you think about the job of a coaching staff as being maintaining that spin axis on a pitcher's breaking ball and like it being the difference between a number four and a number two starter in some cases then then yeah i think that there might be some real some kind of touchy touchy things that require Mm -hmm. certain combinations of coaching or player development staff or analytics and a specific player uh it's just that i mean maybe maybe i'm not giving cole enough credit but Garrett Cole is just so obvious.
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. Yeah. It wasn't just the Astros. It was like when they made that trade, everyone pointed out what they were going to do with him. Like there were blog posts written before it happened. So it was maybe you give them credit, obviously, for seeing that opportunity and taking advantage of it and convincing Cole. Which was maybe the hard part, not just like looking at the stats and saying he should throw this more or that more or this in that location or that. Not in that location, but, you know, actually conveying that message to him in a way that he bought into it. That was maybe the impressive part of it.
0: We watched El Camino last night. And Uh uh, so I got another couple hours of uh, uh, this time. It was the opposite. I was watching Badger, but thinking of him as Garrett Cole the whole time.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. Step bust? Sure.
0: They'll take a dataset sorted by something like 3, minus, or O, B, S, And then they'll tease out some interesting tidbit, discuss it at length, and analyze it for us in amazing ways. Here's
1: today's step last.
0: So, uh, referring back to episode 1299 at the time Jeff did a stat blast about Derek Dietrich who I think he had the high I don't know some, some one of the highest hit by pitch rates ever or something and then that became mm-hmm. a stat blast about having one of the smallest differences between hit by pitch rate and walk rate mm-hmm. and uh, at the time there was only one player in the plate appearance threshold that Jeff set that had had more hit-by-pitches in his career, than then walks. Do you remember who that was? Nope. Yeah. Well, you guys uh, laughed and laughed. Uh, you tried to predict when he died. I think you had a little thing where you predicted when he died. Jeff <laughs> predicted he died before World War II, and then you guys were really excited because he died in 1942, and you celebrated <laughs> that death. It was odd.
1: <laughs> his name was Whitey Alperman. <laughs> right, okay.
0: So Whitey Alperman... Uh, batted 1,758 times. He was hit 39 and he walked only 30. He played from 1906 to 1909. Very different game. Uh, if you lower the threshold and also go back further in time, Jeff could have also mentioned J Fats. J Fats. <laughs> J Fats. That is an MTV VJ name, if I ever heard one. J Fats. How do you think he spells Fats?
1: Uh, F A T Z. F A A T Z. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. It's, it's, yeah. He's got it like, he sort of fattens up the middle of the name, like double A. Like, yeah. Sort of like spaces it out, gives a little oomph. <laughs> Jay Fats. Uh, 43 it by pitches, 39 walks. The funny thing is he played 1884 to 1890. So I'm going to click this and he's going to be 5'5, five, five, 105 pounds. <laughs> Let's see. 6'4, 6'4, <laughs> 196. Oh, okay, you come up these days, that would get you the nickname Slim. Yeah. So those those two, both, uh, if you lower the threshold, I don't count J Fats because eighteen hundreds baseball is like truly, truly not baseball. Mm-hmm. If you keep lowering it, then you get to the pitchers, Don Wilson, six hundred plate appearances, thirteen hit by pitches and nine walks, and then you got Tim Belcher, four hundred thirty six plate appearances, four and two. And then Bartolo Colon, famously only one walk, but he was hit twice, 300 career plate appearances. So we've now named five players who have done this if you keep lowering the threshold. And there is now a sixth. We mentioned Mm. him just a couple days ago. You remember who that is? Mm -mm. Tim LeCastro. Oh, okay. Yeah, Tim LeCastro. So we talked about Tim LeCastro. Uh, having an outrageous hit by pit- pitch rate last year. He was hit 22 times in 250 plate appearances. By the way, I'm sorry, I screamed. I forgot that uh, because I don't have my microphone, that might have been very shrill. Tim LaCastro, 22 hit by pitches last year in 250 plate appearances. We commented on that. And then, like, hours later, I listened to Jeff do a stat blast and I thought, oh, I bet Tim LaCastro I, I, had. So, Tim LaCastro in his career now has 23 hit-by-pitches and 16 walks. He's obviously far below the 1,500 plate appearance threshold that Jeff set, but I think he's got a really good chance. And so here's a few things about Tim LeCastro. In his minor league career, he had more hit-by-pitches than he had walks across his whole minor league career, including one season in short-season ball where he had 32 hit-by-pitches and 12 walks. That's a big ratio. He led... He led all NCAA Division III players in hit-by-pitches his senior year and set a school record. He was hit 29 times and walked only 22. You'll note that 29 is a bigger number than 22, so he's mm-hmm. kind of got this trend. He did it in college, he did it in the minors, and now he has done it in the majors. He might just keep doing it. He might set some sort of stat-class record. <laughs> and he also, one time this year, got hit three times in a game, which ties a record. John Cruck got hit twice. In his career.
1: Wow! All right, that's uh, yeah. All interesting. Right.
0: Uh, I thought that I thought that the reason that I think the reason that it's interesting to say John Cruck there, besides the fact that he played a lot, is because John Cruck is most famous. Probably the most famous moment of his career was being Randy terrified Jones. of getting hit by a pitch.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: Mm-hmm. And so uh, I, I think that uh, that's important context for that moment that I wasn't aware of before Tim mm-hmm. Lecastro came. Tim lacastro 28th batter ever to get hit three times in a game. 20 of those 28 have come this century, and 7 of those 28 have come in the past 5 years. So bulk hit-by-pitch guys are a trend. The time that Tim LeCastro did it this year, it was an 18-2 to game. He got hit when his team was up 11-2, and he got hit when his team was up 14-2. to So he is um, not a strategic hit-by-pitcher. He will take all of them. He wants to get hit all the time. This made me wonder, unrelatedly, totally unrelatedly, whether hit by pitches have platoon splits, whether righties get hit more often by righties, and whether lefties get hit more often by lefties. And uh, one reason they might is because, uh, of course, they're on the pitcher's arm side, so it seems like it would make, it'd be easier for them to have a pitch get away. Uh, another is that uh, they're on the pitcher's arm side, so breaking pitches that don't break, which are the easy ones to get hit by, would be starting at their body, and sure enough, batters get hit about 50% more often when they have the platoon advantage than when they don't have the platoon advantage. So now you know that. Sorry, the other way around. Batters get hit 50% more when they're facing the same-handed pitcher. Mm -hmm. And then even more unrelatedly, I don't know why I looked this up, has nothing to do with Tim LeCastro, you're 3.6 times more likely to get hit by a pitch before there are three balls in the count than when there are three balls in the count. And I think that that proves that a larger percentage of hit-by-pitches than we are aware of are strategic by the batter. It doesn't prove it, but to me it's suggestive. That's a very big difference. Once you get three balls, batters are suddenly very good at avoiding pitches. (laughs) Weird, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that there's a lot more shenanigans going on. So that's Mm -hmm. the stat blast. On three balls, uh, you get
1: more pitches thrown in the strike zone. You do. It it is
0: true. It is Mm -hmm. true. And if my theory were correct, all the way correct then you would also see more hit-by-pitches in two-strike counts because batters would be trying to salvage the plate appearance. And in mm-hmm. fact, there are fewer in two-strike mm-hmm. counts than there are in non-two-strike counts. So uh, that is suggestive of me clinging to a theory that doesn't have <laughs> much statistical weight behind it. Uh-huh. So that's the stat blast about Tim Lancaster and hit-by-pitches. I have a very quick another one, if I may. Okay. Mm-hmm. The Mariners this year set an all-time record by only drawing seven intentional walks. Of course, we know that intentional walks are down, and so in the same way that home runs were up and everybody hit record home run team home run totals, intentional walks have been going down, and this year a bunch of teams had their all-time low intentional walks drawn. And in fact, the three lowest intentional walk seasons in history for a team offense all came this year, the Mariners, the Orioles, and the Blue Jays. Mariners were hit seven times, and I just won. I think that one of the great joys in baseball is when you you draw an intentional walk and then you make the other team pay. I I think that's an underrated, awesome part of a game. It can really make an inning. It's joy, right? Mm -hmm. And so I wondered, well, the Mariners hardly ever drew any walks. Did they get any experience this year of making the other team pay? So here are their seven. First one was to Mitch Haniger. He was intentionally walked, and then he was thrown out, trying to go from first to third on a single. They did not make them pay. In fact, he just gave him an out. The second one was to Dan Vogelbach. He was stranded when the next batter struck out to end the inning. Domingo Santana, he was stranded when the next batter flied out to end the inning. Omar Narvaez, he was stranded, kind of. So he was intentionally walked in a situation where the walk-off run was ahead of him on the bases. And that walk-off run scored when the next batter like doubled or something. So Narvaez ended up being inconsequential. The next hitter made them pay. And they wouldn't have faced that hitter if they if they had faced Narvaez. So maybe that made them pay. I don't know if it's quite as satisfying, but in the delirium of the walk-off, there was probably part of the the satisfaction. But They didn't directly make him pay because of the intentional walk. I don't know if I'm counting that. Aaron Nola, he was stranded on a ground out uh, by the next batter to end the inning. Dan Vogelbach, he was... Austin Nola. Austin Nola, sorry. Dan Vogelbach, he was stranded. By the way, thank you for that. I have noticed how rarely we correct each other when we make (laughs) mistakes. We, Uh We just don't hear him, and all my life, I've been annoyed when broadcasters don't correct each other's mistakes. And I think, mm-hmm. why don't they tell them they're making a mistake? Why don't they tell them that's the different guy on the thing? Yeah. And I just thought they were too shy, too polite, too mad. Right. But mm-hmm. now I hear that it just goes past you. You're trying... Yeah. You're
1: trying to follow along and think of what you're going to say next. You're trying to think of what
0: you're going to say next. Yeah, there's so much mental energy going (laughs) to your next sentence. People do not understand (laughs) how much. Like, I lose four pounds every time we record a podcast. (laughs) I'm like that thing where, like, LeBron James goes through, like, Eight pounds of liquid, <laughs> a, a game. It's that's me, but like blood juice in my brain. All right, Dan Vogelbach stranded on a ground out the next batter to end the inning, and then the seventh and final intentional walk of the year. They intend the Chicago White Sox in September, two totally out of it teams. The White Sox intentionally walked D Gordon, <laughs> and that set up a bases loaded situation in the tenth inning to face Tom Murphy. Now D Gordon. Is not a great hitter and tom murphy nope. had a great season which seemed like a very odd choice to make and tom murphy walked for shrimp he uh, ended the game made him pay that All one right. directly made him pay so the Mariners they got one got <laughs> to the field and and uh i was totally i was going to completely mock this and then i looked and tom murphy's got a huge platoon split in his mm. career and both this season and also in his entire career his on base percentage against righties is actually quite a bit lower than D Gordon's batting average against righties. So (laughs) I think it might have been the right move. Tom Gordon's career on-base percentage against righties is only 250. And this year, when he had a great year, it was only 270. So there may be a case.
1: Okay. All right. All right. Sticking with the Astros theme, this is from Andrew. He says in thinking about possible punishments for the Astros, if they're found to be guilty of what it seems they're guilty of, a common theme seems to be that they'll lose draft picks. But if you told them in 2017 that they could trade right then, whatever draft pick punishment will be coming their way in exchange for the World Series, wouldn't they take that in a heartbeat? Which leads to the question. How many draft picks or drafts would you willingly give up to guarantee yourself the 2020 World Series championship? If you could make a secret deal with the Devil or Rob Minford. What about a baseball a, genie? Yeah, or baseball genie and give up your entire 2020 draft, no picks at all. But lock in the championship wouldn't you do it would you give up 2020 and 2021 to guarantee the 2020 world series how many entire drafts would you give up to guarantee one championship there has to be a line somewhere i think it's more than two but less than six
0: <laughs> well the key thing here is that the astros did not know they were guaranteeing themselves a world series they just thought right. they were getting a little bit of an edge they thought they might have won it anyway and then they thought they might get a little edge mm. and so it's
1: not guaranteed but which could be the case it could be what happened we don't but know ben, but yeah, yeah
0: exactly so, but Ben, what if, to uh, preempt this question with a, another a pre, a preliminary question, what if there was something that a team could do that would guarantee the World Series, guaranteed, like they can somehow guarantee the World Series, what would be the appropriate penalty for that? Not, hmm. not what would the team trade off, but from a league perspective, some super weapon that is so powerful that it completely invalidates the competition because it makes it automatic. What would be the penalty for that?
1: Well, it still kind of depends on whether it breaks the rules, right? I, I mean, I assume it would break the rules if you're somehow guaranteeing a World Series, but if you just found some legal advantage that you let not say it is, at all, right? L- but let's say
0: it is. Let's say it's clearly against the rules. Is against, it okay. as bad to guarantee the outcome of a World Series? in victory as it would be to guarantee the outcome in a loss by throwing it is it black Sox bad because you're you're basically stripping the competition from the
1: yeah i think so
0: okay all right so what would the astros
1: then again is it even if you're guaranteeing yourself a world series in an illegal way then are you even i mean you're profiting presumably no one else knows that you did this, because yes. right, because once everyone knows that you cheated to do that, then it yeah, sort of, it takes a lot say, of the, to the make fun it, away.
0: Yeah, to make it clear and and accessible and understandable. Let's say that the thing that you've done to cheat is you have bribed the other team to throw the World Series.
1: Uh huh. Okay. Are sure.
0: you are both of those teams then? And it's not for gambling. It's not for gambling. <laughs> it doesn't make any difference, but it's not for gambling. Do both teams suffer the same penalty in that situation? Does it matter that one, yeah, try, that one is trying to win, should. which is the point, and one is trying to lose, which is not the point?
1: Yeah, I think they should be punished equally. All right. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. And then the question is, like, is, is it even? do you even enjoy that victory? If you're those players and you know that you're winning just because the other team is lying down? I, I mean, I guess you still make money, and, and if no one else knows that you did it, then your organization profits and your reputation is burnished by that win. But... Can you even actually enjoy it if you know that that's the case? Anyway, that's a different question. So this question, the draft picks question, one of the problems with this Astros sign-stealing scandal is that you can't really punish them in any way that would make them wish they hadn't done this as no. a as an organization and now granted again they may have won the world series if they hadn't done this but let's just say for argument's sake that that cheating was what won them the world series like there's nothing you can realistically do to them that does more damage than that did good for them I guess except for the fact that obviously their reputation is tainted and that title is tainted and whenever it's mentioned in the future it will be the sign-stealing team's World Series win so maybe that takes away a lot of the joy and and pleasure from it but you know you still had that joy in the moment and you still sold a lot of tickets and a lot of merchandise and you Got general acclaim as the best team in baseball and you get to ride in the parade and all that stuff. You can't take it away. And if you do dock the team draft picks or something, as the question seems to say, like, I don't know that you can, even if you take away their ability to be competitive or seriously hamstring their ability to be competitive in the future, is there a point Unless you're saying, like, you know, you're doing something so draconian that they just can't compete for the next 20 years or something. And even then, it's uh, a lot of the players or people who will suffer because of that will be different people. Uh, I guess the Astros fan base would suffer quite a lot if that were the case. But so, that's, that's not who we want. Yeah, that's no, that is, we, the goal. Is not, what is <laughs> the
0: goal of the punishment here? Because it yeah. seems like you can make the case that one, it's to to even things up. The... One team got a bunch of advantage, it's not fair to the other 29 teams, and so by docking them equal or greater value going forward, you disperse the future benefits to other teams so that the ledger ends up square. One is simply to give teams that might be thinking of this a disincentive because they know that if they get caught, the punishment will be disproportionately higher and or maybe disproportionately proportionately higher. And so it it is not in their long-term rational interests. If they're thinking of this purely from a, you know, what is it worth for us to do this sort of perspective, it's not Mm -hmm. worth it for you. Okay. The third is simply retribution that this team cheated you. It cheated the league. It cheated the other 29 teams who, Mm -hmm. you know, make up the league and they're all mad. They've been, they've been injured by these, by these actions. They've been ripped off and they want vengeance they want retribution they want to punish the astros in a way that is emotionally satisfying for them and that will make the astros very unhappy and if it's the last one which i think is i think a lot of it is when i mean that's what that's part of why we're here bemoaning the fact that you can't really punish them because they're too happy they're already (laughs) so happy that nothing you do is going to make them regret doing this and if the point is regret if the point is to cause them regret then do you have to figure out first how much it worked so that you Mm -hmm. can get an appropriately sized retribution and then is it actually more important not to figure out whether it worked but to somehow figure out how much the astros think it worked how much they think it worked because if they think that this was 10 percent of a world series then you need to give them a punishment that they will feel hurts them by that much That that they will regret doing it Is the goal to make the Astros regret this?
1: I think a lot of people would like them to, to suffer for what they did So yes, I guess so And I don't know that you can accomplish that Unless you identify the individuals responsible And again, it sure seems like the, the trash can banging was going on When just about every hitter on that team was hitting at some point And so... I guess you can't prove that they were using that information or that they asked for the trash can stuff while they were at the plate, but this was going on. Everyone had to be aware of it, if not directly using it or benefiting from it. So you could suspend A.J. Hinch or you could, I don't know, suspend Luna, or or even banish someone in the front office if you can prove that they ordered it or knew about it. But can you suspend the whole team would that unless it like is unless you think it is a a Black Sox level problem in which case it's banish everyone who did this and I think that would be extreme so I don't know what you can do other than just saying well they got an edge so we're going to take away their edge in the future and that's how you get draft picks and fines and reducing international spending and that's kind of all you can do
0: would you punish them more because they won the World Series and you're trying to chase that ability to make it hurt? Or do you just admit you you just you, you take the loss on this one? They won, they did it, they got away with it, you didn't stop them. And now you're going to, like, you have a level of punishment that you think is appropriate to all teams in all circumstances who engage in this, and you're not ever going to make the Astros regret it. Uh, but life's that way.
1: I don't think you should punish them more because they won the World Series. I think that there are people who have certainly suggested that you should take their title away, and that's one way. I mean, if you if all you want to do is like remove the the joy that they derive from having won that World Series, then yes, you could take the title away and say, well, you didn't win that World Series retroactively; doesn't count. So, uh, you don't get to brag about that anymore. And I think that would be without precedent. I, I think it would be sort of a dangerous thing to do to retroactively determine who wins or, or to take away a title entirely. You could do that. You know, you don't have to say, well, the Dodgers win that World Series now. You could just say no one won, but that would be so strange. And, yep. and so, Unique. I mean, granted we had 94 when there was no World Series, but just to to say that this didn't happen, (laughs) just strike it from the record, I just – I don't know that you can do that because there are so many examples in baseball of sign stealing and cheating and it's just never happened. And do you want to introduce that possibility that the baseball we're watching right now might one day – not count because we find out something that was happening that we didn't know at the time.
0: I definitely do not think that. I mean, I've, <laughs> I I want to just say like with no ambiguity, I do not think that would be a good thing to do. I, this is mm-hmm. hypothetically, but would they care if you did it? I mean, they got they got it all. They got everything. They know what happened. You're not going to trick them. They got the parade. They got the they got to celebrate. Their um, they sold all the tickets. They know, they know what happened They already knew that they had cheated And they also now know that they won Would they care?
1: I think they would care, I think so If you took away their World Series rings And said, you are not a World Series winner Well, they paid for their own rings (laughs) Well, the organization (laughs) Well, (laughs) the organization did
0: So what are you taking from them? You can't You're taking
1: the achievement, the, the honor The flag that's supposed to fly forever You get to Call yourself a World Series winner. you're
0: just taking the league stamp off the honor. The honor still exists. You won the games.
1: Yeah, you did. But the league kind of makes it official, right? So if the league says it it didn't count, then it didn't count. Like, it'll be in the record books as no World Series winner, and the Astros never won a World Series, and this player and that player never won a World Series. Uh, oh, that, man. That I, matters. I, I it don't. Matters.
0: Th- I genuinely don't think it does. I think that you would, I think the Astros would just, would just suddenly realize how little they care about the league. They, like, they would, they would just say, well, I hate those people anyway. <laughs> they, again, like, they, they had. All the the fun. Like, this is well in the past. If this happened two days after, then I think maybe you're right, right? Then maybe there's not even a parade. Maybe there's no fun to it. They don't get to have, like, uh, you know, the commissioner come hand them the trophy. And I don't even I guess that happens right after. But all that's in the past already. They got all the adrenaline, all the celebration. The clothes have been laundered. It's all now past. I just don't think that you're going to be able to take away any of the significance of it. But let's say that you're right. Then isn't the solution pretty obvious? If you want to punish the Astros, but you don't want to like do something really stupid like monkey with the official records, it, you just say that you're going to. You say you're invalidating the World Series. The Astros are no longer the World Series. And you make them live with that for three weeks. And then you go, psych. <laughs> and then you give them the World Series back. <laughs>
1: and and you just say at the end of it that we just wanted to make them suffer for a few weeks. Yes, yeah.
0: I <laughs> mean yeah, you say psych. Uh
1: yeah, and then
0: you get doubly good cuz you got the you got the good psych at the end too. <laughs> uh
1: yeah, I don't think so. But uh I I get it. I don't know. I don't know what you do. I I think you have to punish any people you can personally find responsible so that other players will be worried about that in the future. And... And I don't know, either you make it more difficult to do things like this, or you just say you're allowed to do this, and everyone can do it and go ahead and do it, and How come you keep going to that? Every every time we record you talk about how there shouldn't be any rules anymore. When did you become this? <laughs> I'm not sure. I just, I mean it depends. If a lot of teams are doing it already, and have been doing it in history then maybe it's impossible or very difficult to police completely, especially if In a world that's just covered with cameras and screens but if you're all allowed to do it then uh, I, i don't know that it's necessarily worse i'm not sure that baseball is any worse if that's the case i think it's bad if a team is getting an advantage by doing that But if every team is allowed to do it, I don't know. I'm not saying it's better baseball, but is it that much worse? I I don't know. I mean, I don't want to take away from the player's performance. I don't think the game is more entertaining if it's being decided by people who aren't even on the team stealing signs from beyond the field. But if there's just total awareness that that can go on, then maybe you do have the players guard the signs more carefully, protect against it, and then you get back to a situation where you have complete parity again and the game is... It's just being dictated by player performance as opposed to some teams knowing the signs and others not knowing the signs. I know there's potentially a pace of play concern there, but I feel like the, the unfair advantage, the unequal part of it is the worst part of science dealing, more so than the thing itself.
0: Yeah, I, I think that you're underestimating the extent to which it would make the game visually intolerable. That Just the amount of effort and energy that would go into thwarting other teams i don't think would be aesthetically pleasing
1: Well, my preferred solution is that we just have a a technological way to pass signs without it being detectable, which I I think is achievable. And then we won't have to even worry about this anymore because you won't be able to pick up the signs with a camera. I think we can do that and and should do that and hopefully will sometime soon. But as for the Astros, uh, (laughs) the draft pick question, is there? does it even matter? Is there a number of years of draft picks that you can take away to make this right?
0: The question said something about if they could guarantee the 2021, but so I guess if the question is what trade off would a team make? And let's not say a guaranteed World Series, but let's say increase their chances from what 3% would be if all the leagues were equally likely, if all the teams were equally likely to win it, 3%. And so let's say to what would you give up to trade from to, to increase your World Series odds from 3% to 50%? Mm-hmm. I would say. Without having done the math here, like, I would guess that you would give up maybe 12 years of drafts. (laughs) Wow.
1: Gosh, that's a lot. That would really hurt your ability to, to win in those years. Like, if you have no draft picks, it's not even like you're losing your top pick or your top pick's moving down 10 spots or something. You're just giving up every draft pick. You're just yeah, saying, it smells, a, it smells a bit high. That's a lot. <laughs> you're just, you're not going to, I mean, that will sink your organization for decades to not have a draft pick. So, Uh, All right. How about this? I will say this. No
0: top 10 picks, no top 10 uh, round picks. So you can only draft 11th round down
1: uh, for four years. Yeah, that doesn't sound like too much for me for what you're getting. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, uh, okay, I've got one more here. I think this will be quick. This is from Max in San Francisco. Ben's vacation got me thinking what if players and coaches were allowed to take vacations during the season the way people in other jobs can take PTO granted the season is only seven to eight months counting spring training in the playoffs but let's say a team thought that a player would benefit from a week away from the team snorkeling with family and lounging by the beach would be healthier happier more productive in the long run and wanted to offer this benefit to players and coaches. Would they take them up on their offer or would the fear of bad optics or the fear of losing their spot or the fear of falling out of sync or shaming from teammates prevent this from happening? And would it be something that only veteran or established players would accept and would free agents negotiate it?
0: Well, I think I remember Mike Kruko one time talking um, sort of off the cuff about how it can really benefit a player if some like non-lingering thing knocks you out for you know, 15 days in the middle Mm -hmm. of the season that ultimately, like, the time you get off, you know, grouped together instead of a day here, a day there, Mm -hmm. is, it can be really helpful. I think, actually, I think what he was saying is that he, this is all like 12 to 25 years ago, so, and I, I wasn't intending to repeat it, but I think he was saying that he was spitballing that instead of giving players off every three or four weeks, they should give Every player a week and then rotate throughout the year. And he thought mm. that having a week at some point in the year would be more valuable than having seven days scattered.
1: Uh huh. Okay.
0: And so that's this. Yep. And, uh, yeah, I, I, d- I think it, it depends how this came up. I mean, if teams came up with this idea and said, Hey, just want to let you know everybody's taking a week off this year. It's mandatory. It's good for you. Then mm-hmm. I don't think they would feel any hesitancy about doing it. Mm-hmm. If they fought for it in a collective bargaining agreement, I think we'd have to put up with a lot of a lot of dumb discourse yes. about it.
1: Yes. Well, I mean, nowadays, you get people being mad at players for taking a day off when their baby is born. Unbelievable. So to take a week off to go snorkeling or something, even if you tried to pitch it as this will be better for him in the long run and he'll come back feeling refreshed, fans never stand for it. So, yes, it, it would have to be like a a league-wide policy or something where it's just like hey we're we're mandating a mental health week for players like it's a high-stress job and they're playing almost every day for many months and so even though they're off for several months in the off-season like that doesn't help you that much like in August or something i mean the fact that you were off from november through february or part of february or whatever like that's nice but By mid-August or something Like you're still dead tired At that point so you probably Could benefit from that Time off but yeah if it Were just like one team trying to institute This there'd be so much Criticism of it and and Players themselves probably Wouldn't want to do it because they might Think they would cost themselves I mean They wouldn't be putting up numbers During that week away you'd have to Somehow convince them that they'd actually be better they'd play so much better because they're refreshed when they come back that in the long run it would all equal out and I don't know that you could actually make that case convincingly and yes as Max was saying like you'd probably you know you might get Chris Davis (laughs) taking a week off but would you get the young player who's not making that much money and is trying to solidify his status would he feel like he could do this even if his team did It, it would be like that thing at companies that say you can just take as much vacation time as you want and then it ends up that no one ends up taking any vacation time so i just i don't know that i can see this working and i don't know that it needs to happen but i could see an argument for it you could make a case maybe the very
0: first sentence of jay fat's saber bio is said by the sporting news to be quote as slender as a knitting needle
1: oh yeah okay you called that
0: yeah all right. I like it though. I think they should get vacation. I I think that they need to. I um, you know you know me. I, I don't like 162 game schedule. I I like it as a consumer. I'm mm-hmm. I, as a greedy person who likes baseball. I, it's good for me. Uh, mm-hmm. But I I think the sport would be a lot better with like 108 games.
1: Yeah, my main reservation about that is that in baseball, you you need so many games to reveal a team's true talent or a player's true talent that it seems like, gosh, too many games, but there's a lot of randomness in it as it is, and you need like 67 games Neil Payne has found before a team's record is half skill and half luck. So at a certain point, if you... Did cut it back then Your results would not be as Reflective of of team talent And I like that baseball is then again The playoffs are the opposite of that So if we've already Decided that we're going to award the Title based on small sample Things that aren't reflective of true talent Then I guess maybe we might as well Just do the regular season that way too A little bit more than we currently do
0: Yeah I wonder how many I wonder if, if you If you cut, say, 50% of the games but increased the innings in a game to 10, so you're still shaving I wonder if uh, how much Neil's findings would be affected if you changed the innings in a game. Like, how many games would it take if games were Mm -hmm. only 7 innings? How many games would it take if games were 11 innings? And I wonder if—I'm not suggesting that you do this. I'm suggesting that it's time to end this podcast.
1: (laughs) Maybe the All-Star break should just be like an actual week instead of— three days, really. Maybe that's the vacation. I don't know. Because that'd be, that'd help too, just in the sense that all the players would be a little bit rusty or they'd have that time off yeah. so you yeah. wouldn't have to worry about like well this guy's taking vacation now and this other guy's taking vacation then and and you wouldn't have the hassle of trying to like organize it to make sure that everyone got their vacation time and scheduling would be a big issue so if you just did have a longer break mid-season it would be tough for fans who like feel like they're in withdrawal even with the current all-star break but if it were just a few days longer than it is that might not be so bad
0: yeah, yeah. You do, I mean, you're cutting games from the schedule if you do that, though.
1: Yeah, probably. Mm-hmm. All right, that will do it. Thanks for listening. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash wild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Spencer Von Hirschman, Marvin Cortez, Jeff Gilbert, Harold Walker, and... Tom Evans, thanks to all of you. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at Facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild. Replenish our mailbag, send us questions and comments via email at podcasthepangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. We hope you have a great Thanksgiving, and we will be back with another episode a little later this week. Talk to you then. There's no black or white No change in the light No night, no golden sun The sound of cars The smell of bars The
0: awful feeling
1: fluorescent lights, this sacrifice, there's hard feelings, there's pointless waste. Uh.